I'm Reva Stout, and you're listening to A Therapist Can't Say That, the show where we talk about the things that it feels like a therapist can't say. It feels so fitting that I'm working on this episode about what happens when our clients encounter our humanity in the form of our limitations. At this moment where my personal and professional lives are intersecting in a way where my clients and I are very much encountering some of my limitations. And so are you listeners, because I'm releasing this episode. I don't even know how far behind schedule at this point. I don't want to know. I've been deep in the agonies of a childcare transition, if you know, you know, and had to last minute cancel an entire week of sessions, and also on short notice do a bunch of rearranging of my schedule to accommodate our new preschool pickup time, which also, if you know, you know. If you are in private practice and you have to significantly change your schedule and you want to at least mostly keep your clients, it is a fucking nightmare. It's like a high-stakes Tetris game, or maybe it's more like one of those little sliding puzzles with the numbers where you have to move the tiles around and get the numbers in numerical order. And just when you think you're on the verge of getting it, you have just two numbers out of order. You have to go back several steps and rearrange the whole thing again. And I'm in that right now as I record this, by the way. I'm not at the point of resolution yet. I'm not at the place where it all hangs together and I get to breathe a sigh of relief and settle into a new normal. I'm still somewhere in the tornado of it all watching all the bits and pieces go by, and hoping that when they land, they're intact and not three states over. Maybe by the time this episode airs, I will have gotten to whatever that new normal is, and I'll get to have my and-then-I-realized moment that ties this professional and personal chapter up nice and neat. Maybe. But if so, I don't know what it is yet, and so I'm coming to you now from the center of this messy place. I think it says something, and not just about me as a person, that I barely dipped my toe into this episode and it already feels a little vulnerable to have shared what I've shared so far. I just keep getting visions of this TikTok or Instagram reel I saw a while back that was about how trauma therapists should be. And one of the things was that we, trauma therapists, should prep our clients for any of our absences with plenty of advance notice that unexpected absences run the risk of significantly harming our clients. And my clients are trauma clients. And as I've just told you, I canceled a week of sessions last minute and then plunged a significant minority of my clients into the midst of a schedule reshuffle, also with essentially no notice. Some of those clients are in the thick of trauma processing work. And I would certainly agree with that TikTok therapist and others who espouse that tenet because it's a common one, that proper trauma-informed practice is to prep clients for your absences, not surprise them with stuff, let them know what to expect, etc., etc. I would certainly agree that this situation has not been ideal. And maybe that crowd, those therapists, would give me a pass on this one. Maybe there have been enough headlines over the past few years about the national disaster that is childcare in America that my circumstances here would be adjudicated as extenuating. I'm sure that by some they would be, but I'm also pretty sure that by some they wouldn't. 
particularly given the shark tank of mutually imposed impossible standards and fierce judgment when we fail to meet those standards that is so baked into our professional culture, which of course I've talked about on the show many times before. Someone out there is clutching their pearls over my unpredictability or unreliability or however you want to characterize it. Or they would be if I posted about it in a Facebook therapist group. Actually, just to tip the scales here in case I haven't shared enough pearl-clutching type information yet. So during this time period when I've been in this childcare transition scheduling vortex, I also didn't respond to a few, God, maybe more than a few, emails asking me for new client consults or waitlist consults. I'm not taking new clients right now. But I haven't responded to some of those inquiries yet. I've found that that's very polarizing and upsetting to some other therapists if you admit that you even occasionally miss responding to a new client inquiry, even though almost everybody does miss responding to an email, at least from time to time. So this speculation about who out there may or may not be judging me really isn't super consequential, ultimately. Beyond that little frisson of anxiety from sharing something a little bit vulnerable in an entirely public setting, some therapist in Iowa judging me from afar doesn't really have a whole lot of impact on my professional life. So I'm not throwing myself a pity party here, not picking on Iowan therapists specifically, by the way, it's just the state that came to mind. But yeah, other therapists might be judging me unfairly. Isn't super high up on my list of complaints I feel the need to lodge against the universe. However, remember that I said a few minutes ago that I think the fact that sharing this moment of the messy intersection of my personal and professional lives feels vulnerable says something that isn't just about me. I think the fact that this feels vulnerable very much speaks to what Asher and Onyx and I were discussing in the last episode about the taboo of having our needs and limitations be experienced by our clients and the fear of catastrophe if and when that happens. If you're wondering, by the way, whether I told my clients why my schedule has been a mess lately, yeah, I did. Maybe that's obvious because, of course, now I'm talking about it on the podcast, which some of my clients listen to. So it would be a little weird if I just wrote them a general due to circumstances beyond my control email and then waxed poetic about my childcare agonies to the entire internet. But yes, I did tell them. And then I happened to see the other day in one of the therapist Facebook groups I'm a part of a therapist who was going through a really hard time in their personal life and was agonizing over the decision about whether or not to cancel a day of sessions this week because of a dying pet. And they said something like, what do I tell them? I can't tell them I'm putting down my cat that day so I can't see them. Yes, you can. You don't have to, but you can. You can be a therapist and be a person who loses a pet, and your clients can know that about you. You can be a therapist and be a parent who sometimes has to meet your child's needs in a way that impacts your ability to show up for work, and your clients can know that about you. You can be a therapist and be a person with medical needs that are visible in session and or impact your ability to show up sometimes for sessions, and your clients can know that about you. It's allowed, for one. The therapy police are not going to knock on your door and yank your license away because you told your clients your cat is dying. And then maybe your clients will see you as someone who thinks the loss of a pet matters. Maybe your clients will see you as someone who thinks it's justifiable to take time off work to grieve. 
Maybe my clients this past month will see me as someone who values making sacrifices in my work life so I can show up as the bottom line person for my child. Maybe they'll see me as someone who is not exempt from having my life disrupted by the vicissitudes of life as a working parent in America. Or maybe they'll think I'm a jerk. Or maybe they won't think that much about it at all. They almost certainly won't be thinking about it nearly as much as I have been. But there are a lot of maybes when we allow our clients to see more of us, to know more of the person that they are being impacted by. And the uncertainty can be frightening. I think coming from the backgrounds that the vast majority of us come from, where the origin point of so much of our attunement and responsiveness to others comes from a drive to manage other people's emotional experiences. I think many of our really scary moments as therapists are those moments in which we choose to or we are forced to prioritize something else over predicting and managing our clients' emotional experiences. As I've been contemplating this, I've been speculating that perhaps it's not just the possibility of a therapeutic rupture that we fear in these kinds of situations when we fail to show up perfectly, when our vulnerabilities and limitations noticeably impact our clients. Yes, we fear the rupture, of course. Even though the research says that if you successfully repair the rupture, the therapy will likely have a better outcome than if you'd never had the rupture in the first place, rupture is nobody's favorite part of the game. But I've been wondering if it might also be true that we fear our clients' kindness. Because I have found that most of the time, when my clients encounter my limitations, my vulnerabilities, my honest mistakes and oversights and various failures, most of the time their response is to be kind. And my sense is that we are often taught to be suspicious of our clients' kindness to us, to fear that if we receive their kindness, we are reversing roles or making the client's therapy experience about us or they're fawning or we're being too familiar and confusing the relationship. And yeah, sure, those things happen. But I think that they happen a whole lot less often than what it seems to me is usually happening in these scenarios, which is authentic human kindness and grace being offered between two humans that care about each other. Over these years of doing therapy, I've seen that not always, but by and large, my clients tend to be a lot more relaxed and understanding about my mistakes and limitations than I am with my mistakes and limitations. And frankly, more than I have often been with other people's mistakes and limitations. It has humbled me and healed me in some way to be the recipient of that kind of understanding over and over again. And I will accept that healing, even though I'm supposed to be the healer in this relationship, right? Because in the course of learning to carry the weight of this work, I've learned to take healing where I can get it. I think it would feel very natural here to segue to a discussion of how we decide to self-disclose what and when, but frankly, I don't have anything new or particularly exciting to say there. I think that topic has been pretty heavily belabored, and that as Asher said during our interview, those conversations tend to get pretty boring. I also think that any particular therapist's relationship with self-disclosure, once you step past the shoulds and shouldn'ts, is pretty deep person of the therapist work. How you engage with it is not about having the right self-disclosure heuristic. It's about the self as the therapist's instrument 
and the way you as a therapist use your particular unique instrument. So I'm not going there. Before I divert from this branch of the topic, though, I want to leave you with what I think is one of the best resources on self-disclosure if you are looking to explore your approach to and feelings about self-disclosure, which is from the book, The Use of the Self in Therapy. The editor of the book is Michelle Baldwin, and the chapter that I'm referring to is written by Charles Kramer. It's chapter three. It's called Revealing Ourselves. And to me, it's one of the most succinct and thorough explorations of self-disclosure for contemporary therapists. So if you're hoping for more on that topic, I recommend that chapter and we will list the book in the show notes. What I want to do now is revisit a version of the question I asked my guests in our interview, which is, if our clients encounter our humanity in the form of our limitations, needs, vulnerabilities, etc., and it disrupts their idea of who a therapist can and should be, what does that mean about who people believe a therapist should be? And if that is who they believe a therapist should be, what does that mean about what they believe therapy is? And if it isn't that, then what is it? And who should we be instead? Okay, so I realized that was not only multiple questions, it was also very abstract So I'm going to do a quick recap here of what exactly it is that I'm talking about. So when I was talking with Asher and Onyx, I mentioned something I saw on Reddit where some Redditors were talking about a therapist influencer with a very large Instagram account who sometimes shares in her stories about her struggles with disordered eating. Not just past struggles, but ongoing struggles. And I read this conversation with interest. Because not only were some people objecting to this therapist influencer sharing her struggles publicly, they were also expressing being disturbed by the fact that a therapist would have these struggles at all. People were saying things like, it's so scary, you'd never know how many therapists are out there who have serious mental health problems or are essentially basket cases, and it's so disturbing how you could walk into a therapist's office and end up being treated by one of these crazy people. That was the gist of this Reddit thread. I certainly don't think every person, every client, every potential client feels this way, but I do think it's common. This Reddit thread is far from the first time I've heard those views espoused. This fear of being treated by a therapist who is secretly crazy, or people discounting the entire field because of knowing therapists who have messed up lives. That's something I've encountered often in the general public discussion of therapy. And yes, we can chalk this up to a certain extent to mental health stigma. As Onyx pointed out in our interview, there seems to be more acceptance of, say, a gynecologist having a gynecological problem or a massage therapist having a back problem than there is of a therapist having ongoing struggles with their own mental health or difficulties in their intimate relationships, whatever. I think that's true. And I'm also aware of the way that, you know, there is intense pressure on dermatologists to have perfect skin. There is pressure on naturopathic doctors to be, or at least to seem, holistically healthy. And I know if a cardiologist acquires heart disease, they are likely to face a pretty heavy undercurrent of judgment about what they must have done wrong to make that happen and scrutiny about why, given that as a cardiologist, they should have known better. So yeah, this is all ableism, yes, and there is something to be learned from it here because part of ableism is fear. It's fear of what could happen to me, 
What limitations might I have to learn to live with? What kind of state of health is possible for me? And to return to that question I posed a few minutes ago, if people's perceptions of who a therapist can and should be are disrupted by our vulnerabilities, needs, and limitations, what does that mean about who they think a therapist can and should be? I think the answer is that many people believe that a therapist should be an aspirational figure, that our access to the body of knowledge we acquire as therapists should give us access to the land of what Asher and Onyx called a state of perpetual well-being. And then our clients can come to us and we lead them through some sort of process whereby they then get to enter the land of perpetual well-being too. I think we all know that isn't true. And the incongruence between that idea and the reality of us as people is a major source of imposter syndrome for therapists. But I think we are often promoting it, wittingly or unwittingly, in the way we talk about what therapy is. And even when we aren't promoting it, it still remains prevalent among the general population, people who are not therapists. As I see it, there are two dominant ideas in the popular imagination about what therapy is. And both of them reinforce this view of the therapist as an aspirational figure, even if they don't include that aspect explicitly. So the first, I think, basically mainstream idea of what therapy is, is that you go to therapy to learn tools. The tool metaphor is very prevalent. This is the more skills-based lens that has gone mainstream in part because insurance companies love it. It seems very concrete, at least on the surface. It can be manualized. And now in the world of social media therapy content, the tools make great content. So this idea is you go to therapy, get the tools, apply them, fix your mental health, become your best self. The second current dominant idea about what therapy is, is less mainstream, but I would say is the dominant alternative to the learning tools model. It's what I would call somewhere in the neighborhood of the somatic trauma-based, sometimes it overlaps with more woo-woo stuff, which is fine, I'm not anti-woo, but a lot of the psychedelic-assisted therapy discourse fits into this model, I think which is basically that therapy is a healing process of clearing or resolving trauma. That language is used a lot, the language of clearing and resolution. So in this idea of therapy, you go to therapy, you do your healing process, you clear and resolve your trauma, you leave healed, become your best self. The first model is about acquisition, and the second model is about purification. And just to make sure that I'm remaining connected to a couple of examples here so that it's clear I'm not just constructing straw men, remember the Reddit thread I mentioned a minute ago, which is an example of the tool acquisition model, where you have people espousing the belief that a therapist should have access to enough tools that they are no longer susceptible to something like disordered eating. And so if the therapist isn't using the tools and they're still struggling, then that's on them. And as for the second model, which I'm saying is about purification, where you clear and resolve your trauma and then go on to live your best life, the example that keeps coming to mind is this Instagram tile I saw a while back from a trauma therapist with a large account where she claimed that the last stage of trauma therapy is to become the person you would have been if the trauma had never happened. I'm going to unpack more of that what I find to be a horrifying claim in a few minutes here. But I think it's a great example of the second model where you clear and resolve your trauma and then step into being your best self. 
So how do these two general ideas of what therapy is, which many modalities could easily fit under, depending on how they're presented, how do these two general models reinforce this idea that a therapist should be an aspirational figure? Well, if that's possible and accessible, right? If one can acquire all the tools and or clear all the trauma and then be well, then shouldn't we all have done it? And if that's all possible, if therapy puts that level of wellness within reach and we therapists have noticeably not reached it, doesn't that say something about how we personally must have failed? No pressure. People want therapists to be aspirational figures for the same reason they want celebrities or influencers or doctors or personal trainers or pick something, anyone else to be an aspirational figure. They want us to represent something that's possible for them. That if they make enough money, exercise enough, decorate their house right, acquire enough mental health tools, clear all their trauma, that they will be happy, well, safe, and they will arrive at the place where they get to sigh and release the tension of the uncertainty and terror of human life. We all want that. And as therapists, we have knowingly or unknowingly been recruited into a representation of that. Now, it's not enough to say that we don't believe in that or that we don't want that. For one thing, this is the cultural current we are all immersed in, the culture that tells us this aspirational existence is possible. And when we aren't paying attention, we get swept up in it without realizing it. And we start buying into things like it's wrong and a personal and professional failure for our clients to ever be touched by our difficulties and limitations. And then we can end up unwittingly reinforcing this perception that some of our clients likely hold that we are and should be this type of aspirational figure to them. The other piece is that if we don't believe we are that type of aspirational figure and we don't believe that therapy is a process of getting our clients to the finish line of perpetual well-being where we already live, we probably should have some other different contrasting idea of who we are and what we are doing and where we are taking people if it is not to that magic land of perpetual well-being. Realistically, this is a set of questions to which there could potentially be many right answers. I said in the second episode of this season that therapy is a game. And by the way, for those of you who apparently interpreted otherwise, I said therapy was a game. I did not say it was a competition. I provided a working definition of the word game. That definition did not have the word competition in it. Not all games are competitive. I hope this clears things up. Anyway, I said in that episode that therapy is a game that facilitates a kind of play that mitigates human suffering. And there are many versions of that game. There are many types of play. And there are even many different types of human suffering the game of therapy can, at its best, alleviate. But I think it's important not to be too pat and just say, well, there are many right answers. It's too easy to pretty much leave this stone unturned. Most of you are going to reach for your theoretical orientations to try and explain what it is you're trying to do as a therapist, and that's not enough. For one thing, because we know that there are no theoretical orientations that are demonstrated to be more effective than any other, so that can't just be it. And also because pretty much every theoretical orientation out there oversells what happens by the end of the process of therapy. 
you can take almost every theoretical orientation that I can immediately think of, and some version of it fits just fine into this version of therapy where we have the therapist as an aspirational figure of wellness and the process of therapy as a journey to the state of perpetual well-being. We can't simply look to our theoretical orientations to straightforwardly provide an alternate vision for us here. So I'm going to give you one of my answers. Remember that the questions we're looking at here are, if I'm not an aspirational figure of wellness, and I'm not doing therapy that leads my clients to join me in a state of perpetual well-being, then who am I? What am I doing in therapy? And where am I taking my clients? And I said one of my answers, because not only are there many right answers for therapists in general, there are probably many right answers for each therapist. So this is only one of mine, but I do think it's one of my most important. And here I'm going to go back to the Instagram tile I mentioned a few minutes ago that said that the last stage of trauma therapy was becoming the person you would have been if the trauma had never happened. And I just find that claim to be so abhorrent because that's not possible. I will allow that maybe in a very small minority of cases where someone had a straightforward single event trauma as an adult, maybe they'll become the person they'd been if the trauma had never happened. I think if it's significant enough that they needed therapy about it, probably not, but I'll allow that it's possible. Of course, if you've been doing trauma work with clients, you know that we almost never see clients whose trauma history consists of a single straightforward event that happened to them as an adult. Contrary to what we may have been led to believe in grad school, most of our trauma clients are coming in with a long history of complex relational trauma starting in childhood. A person who has a long history of complex relational trauma starting in childhood is not going to become the person they would have been if the trauma had never happened. And it's so abhorrent to me that someone is trying to sell them that outcome on social media. But okay, obviously I believe that the effects of trauma can be mitigated or I wouldn't be doing trauma work. But among the many ways in which people are permanently impacted by trauma, is that experiencing trauma teaches us things that we cannot unknow. Trauma gives us knowledge. The usual way of describing this is that trauma changes our beliefs, and that's true. That is a true way of stating that. But a subset of those beliefs are more than beliefs. They are facts. A common example of a trauma-related belief is, the world is not a safe place. Well, the world is not a safe place. If someone gets into a horrific car accident and comes away with the belief that a horrific accident can occur out of the blue any place in any time, that's not just a belief. That is knowledge. And it is a different kind of knowledge than simply knowing intellectually that technically anything can happen at any time. Trauma bestows us with painful knowledge about what the world is like, what is possible, what people are capable of doing to one another. There may be maladaptive beliefs that we can unbelieve, but there is also truth that unless we are in denial, we cannot unknow. So there is no going back to the person before the trauma or becoming the person that would have existed if the trauma hadn't happened. There is no version of the person where they were never impacted. There is no version where there wasn't something lost. No version where there isn't terrible knowledge that now must be carried 
forever. I do not pretend when I do trauma work with someone, I am leading them to that fantasy version of wellness. Where I am taking them, I hope, is to a place where they can make peace with the reality of the after, where they can grieve the irreversibility of some of the impact, a place where the truth of the terrible knowledge they carry is not denied, but welcomed, and where we in the land of people who carry that knowledge can strengthen ourselves to carry it without breaking. What I just described does not make as good of a fantasy as the fantasy of perpetual well-being does, but it makes a much better reality because it's actually real. If we don't talk about this, if we don't vision it, it's way too easy to get sucked back towards this cultural fantasy that wellness is a thing we can achieve and maintain. It's too easy to play into this fantasy version of therapy where someone comes in unwell and leaves well, and that we therefore have to maintain impossible standards for our own well-being in order to serve as an aspirational figure to advertise this process. If we are going to opt out of that and out of the imposter syndrome and the us and them therapists and client mentality that goes with it, if we're going to divest from unrealistic expectations of human existence for ourselves and for our clients, we have to spend some energy getting clarity on what it is we're doing and where we are going instead. Where we're going and where we're taking people is part of who we are individually as therapists. It's part of the unique gifts we have to offer people in this work. We don't usually talk that much about our individuality as therapists, except in these vague allusions to fit. But the reason that fit is a thing is because we are each bringing something forth, a particular gift, a particular medicine that has the potential to be the right thing for a particular person at the moment they are at in their healing journey when we encounter them. Yeah, I just said healing journey. Deal with it. I am. I do believe that there are some universals in what it means to do good therapy. I talk about those things a fair amount, but every therapist-client relationship has the potential to be something particular and special. Our clients bring their individuality, and at our best, we bring ours, too. And when we try to paste ourselves onto this image of the aspirational therapist figure, when we scramble to cover up things about ourselves that don't fit into that aspirational vision, when we persist in jamming ourselves into the cookie cutter of the good therapist archetype, we risk losing touch with the very particularities about ourselves that have the potential to impact our clients the most powerfully. The poet Audre Lorde said, Nothing I accept about myself can be used against me to diminish me. If therapists are to be aspirational figures, I would want it to be for that. Not as people who have achieved healing or achieved wellness or resolved every trauma or gotten our lives together once and for all, which we can never be, but as people who strive to accept and contend with the whole truth about ourselves. That is something worth aspiring to. If you're enjoying A Therapist Can't Say That, please rate, review, and follow the show wherever you listen to podcasts. It really makes a difference for a little pod like this one. And please don't forget to share the show with your therapist friend who could use an invitation to opt out of the pretense of perpetual well-being. You can find me, Reva Stout, at IntoTheWoodsPortland.com 
I always welcome your thoughts, feedback, critiques, complaints, compliments, suggestions, and of course your A Therapist Can't Say That moments. Feel free to reach out to me via email or sending me a voice note to reva at intothewoodsportland.com. Talk to you next time.